Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. Week two of, of our, uh, our series called The Seven Churches of Revelation. Uh, we're going to kind of be, be walking through each of those, those seven churches. And as a disclaimer, the same disclaimer was given last week. Uh, if you are hoping to hear about what goes down at the end of time, who the Antichrist is, what the sign of the beast is, all of those different things, you are going to be sadly disappointed in this series because that's not what we're talking about from the book of Revelation. Uh, even though we're talking about parts of it specifically, it's not about any of that. It's actually Jesus talking to the seven churches of Revelation, which happens to be the first kind of three-ish chapters of that book. And so if you have your Bible handy, uh, whether physical or or digital or whatever, you can flip to Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation 2 today, um, and uh, we're going to kind of slowly work our way through through that. As you're turning there, I just kind of want to update you a little bit on my son Noah. I know a lot of you kind of know what's going on with, with Noah. If you're new with us, uh, you probably don't. Uh, my, my youngest son Noah, um, he kind of has a, a mystery spot on his brain. They don't know what it is. It's not a tumor or anything like that. So he's been going for for MRIs and seeing specialists, and we get to do that wonderful drive all the way to Stanford and back, all of that stuff. Um, and uh, he was supposed to have a really, really big MRI about two weeks ago. Um, and I thank you for all of you who prayed for that. Uh, but in typical six-year-old fashion, uh, when they don't put you under general anesthesia and you have to go lay down with a cage around your head and go through a big metal donut that makes a lot of weird sounds and has a lot of big lights, uh, he had a really hard time with it. And so uh, we weren't able to complete the MRI this time, um, but we're supposed to reschedule and we're supposed to uh, have an MRI where he goes under general anesthesia uh, in the next, hopefully, hopefully month, month or so. But amid, amid this entire thing, um, oftentimes, as I'm sure you feel at times too, when things are kind of out of your control, when you're concerned, when there's worry, when there's tragedy, anything like that, it just kind of feels really heavy, right? It just, it just feels heavy. And that's the way I have felt. Like there is nothing that I can do about it. And as humans on earth, there are things that we just simply can't control. And when those things are heavy, simply, you know, things specifically like, like sickness and, and heartache, it just becomes incredibly difficult for us. Life is difficult. Life is, is hard. Think about, you know, tragedies that maybe you've had in your own life. Right, maybe people who have, have let you down, friends who you thought were friends who ended up stabbing you in the back at some point, that promotion that you deserved was actually giving, given to someone else, the car died on the freeway and left you stranded, right? All of those things, you're just like, oh, are you joking me right now? Right, we, uh, we have a lawnmower, and uh, I feel like every time I've tried to mow the lawn over the last six weeks, the lawnmower has just broken, like every single time, like I'll get out there and it's something new every time. It's like, oh, the battery's dead again. I have to wait three hours until it's 4 p.m., the hottest part of the day, to then be able to, to drive my lawnmower, right? And I know that's not a tragedy, but I'm just frustrated by it happening again yesterday. But uh, so, so regardless, of, like, like tragedy in general, like think about those different times that you have had. The car left you stranded, the bank account that's literally down to just, just dollars or cents sometimes. You didn't know what you would eat next or you lost a loved one maybe who you thought that, man, they had more life to, to live, 
Or even think back to even as, as we're about to remember 9-11 tomorrow, right, and the tragedy that took place 20, 20, uh, 22 years ago and the difficulty that that brought, that uneasiness that that, 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 that brought, that it's just heavy. We've all experienced tragedy. We've all experienced difficulty at some point, of our, some point in our lives. And I'm sure if we polled everybody in here, you could all point to something in your life that you just felt like was heavy and that was tragic in some way. And as we, as we walk through this, as you think about this, you nod your head, let me encourage you that, that you're among friends, right? All of us here, like I said, have experienced that in some way. And life is full of suffering, as a matter of fact. Suffering is inevitable. And the sooner that we can wrap our heads around that, the easier it will be when it comes time to suffer. One, one person said this. He said, Christians, of course, use spiritual language to minimize suffering constantly, even their own. They need to exonerate God in the, in the midst of tragedy. Even to shove Bible verses in a person's face can be just as harmful as saying something actively discouraging, as if God were small enough to be invalidated by our individual suffering. Meaning, essentially, we try to stand up for God. We think oftentimes that, God, well, your shoulders aren't necessarily big enough for me to be able to recognize that suffering might just be part of your plan. It might just be part of human existence. And so because of that, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to fire off verses and, well, you don't have enough faith. You have the faith of mustard seed. You too can move these mountains. Like whatever it may be. And we end up just trying to like defend God because we are worried that, oh, God can't look bad ever. He's not big enough to be able to handle people's criticisms or anything like that. And we oftentimes forget that, especially amid suffering, that God is still sovereign, that God is still in control of, of everything. So if that's true, if we shouldn't just like flippantly throw Bible verses out or anything like that, how is it that we should indeed respond to suffering? I know some of the best counseling I've ever done in my life is people will come into my office and they say they have a problem and I just say, hey, what's going on? And they'll talk for like 30 minutes, right? And I'll get clarity and that sort of thing. At the end, simply say, I am so sorry. Can I pray with you? And I don't have to have a right answer. I don't have to have a solution for them. I can remind them that, hey, in the midst of this, like God is sovereign. Let me pray to our, our big sovereign God who can handle all of this. And so we learn a whole lot about that by looking at the next church in our series here. It's the Church of Smyrna, S-M-Y-R-N-A. And this church is actually spoken to by Jesus in Revelation 2. It's going to be verses 8 through 11, and we'll slowly work our way, our way through these. But in this section of Scripture, Jesus is speaking to John the Apostle. I gave you a whole bunch of context last week. If you missed it, go back online. You can hear, hear that message from, from last week. But, but John has been exiled to this island called Patmos. And Jesus has come to reveal himself, literally to kind of like unveil himself. That's why the book is called Revelation, not Revelations. It's one revelation, one revelation given to John by, by Jesus. 
And so because of this, Jesus has a message for seven very distinct churches. And all of these churches, they're found in in Asia Minor, kind of modern day Turkey. And these are literal churches. These are not figurative churches. These are churches with congregations, with, with pastors, all these different things. And so Jesus has a word for them. But the word that he gives is also applicable to all of the churches in existence today and yesterday over the course of the last 2,000 years. Right, so the city of Smyrna is what it's called. It's located about 35 miles north of Ephesus. If you remember last week, these seven churches kind of form a horseshoe shape in Asia Minor. And so as they are listed, they are listed in order from which how they are supposed to be passed, how this letter is supposed to be passed from church to church. So last week we talked about the church of Ephesus. Right? The church of Ephesus had a whole bunch of different issues going on, but the church of Ephesus was about 40 miles from where John was riding on the island of Patmos. So that's 40 miles, and then this, 40 miles east of Patmos. And so now, this is going to be 35 miles north of Ephesus. So this letter is starting largely to kind of make its way make its way around. And so of the seven cities that that Jesus addresses, the seven churches, specifically Smyrna, the city of Smyrna is considered by far to be the most beautiful church, the most beautiful city of any of these cities. The city is actually known as as the glory of Asia, really beautiful, really important city in the Roman Empire, and thought by many to be the birthplace of Homer for you literature nerds out there. Right? That there's actually a statue uh, that, that has been, or a temple rather, that was erected in honor of Homer. And so what's interesting though is Smyrna, the word, it's the Greek word for myrrh. Now you guys are thinking, like, where did I hear that word myrrh before? Right? Think back to Jesus and, and Jesus being born. Think back to, to, to Christmas time. The word myrrh literally means bitter. It's a small fruit. The fruit's just, just larger than kind of, a, kind of a pea. And it's known for a fragrance that it gives off um, when it's crushed. And so myrrh, back in the birth narrative of Jesus, um, uh, was one of the three gifts that the Magi brought to baby Jesus along with gold and along with frankincense. Right? And so at first glance, myrrh, myrrh probably seems like kind of a, a random present as, as a ba- at a baby shower, right? If somebody showed up with like crushed peas that were bitter if you tasted them, it smelled fragrant, that's kind of weird. You're like, maybe diapers next time, right? So the Magi show up with, with this thing, um, and, and largely gold, if you think about the other gifts, gold would have been an appropriate gift for the Messiah King, Right? If you were bringing king a present, you want to bring something of great value. So we, we, we kind of understand gold, right? We don't necessarily understand the frankincense and the myrrh, the myrrh side, of, um, side of things. So, so there's gold, and then there was this incense, this frankincense as well. And so this would have had kind of a, a wick, and uh, that, that wick would have been lit and would give off a fragrant smoke in the presence of, of an actual king. It's kind of a picture of the priesthood, as a matter of fact, if you go back to the Old Testament. This idea of burnt offerings and that sort of thing. But myrrh, myrrh still seems random. Even as you are kind of do a, a deep dive into why, why myrrh? But myrrh was, was one of the ingredients used in the anointing oil in the priests in the temples back in the Old Testament. So why then? That's weird. Why, why for Jesus as it was brought? And it may have seemed like a completely pointless gift for him, but actually under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Magi gave the myrrh as a symbolic gift. A gift that really was appropriate for Jesus. Jesus being 
crushed and giving off an aroma that would be pleasing to the world after all was said and done. And so all of a sudden, this becomes significant. Smyrna, this church, was where these believers were feeling pressure. They were feeling kind of the squeeze of persecution, of tragedy all around them. A lot of them were going to be crushed. But Jesus assures them that their sacrifice is a fragrant offering to them. So we're going to get to that in just a little bit. But Revelation 2, verse 8, this is what it says. It says, to the, angel of, to, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, remember this is Jesus telling John what to do. Jesus saying, hey, John, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write this. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Okay, so if you remember last week, we talked about there was kind of a pattern that Jesus lays out for each of these seven churches. And the first thing that Jesus is going to do in all of these things is he's going to talk about who he is. He's going to say, who is the one who is supposed to be talking? And so he describes himself, right? And Jesus, he describes himself here as the first and the last. It's kind of a reference, actually, to chapter 1. In chapter 1, Jesus calls himself both the Alpha and the Omega, the alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter. This is the same as Jesus saying in English, I am the A and I am the Z. And so not only here is Jesus both the first and the last, but he also identifies himself as the one who was dead and came back to life. And so this then should be encouragement for people who are facing persecution. I'll tell you why in just a second. But before we get there, we just need to understand that Jesus, as he's talking, if, if this is anybody but Jesus, if this is anybody but the Son of God, this seems both incredibly arrogant and, and like, sounds a ton like someone who is lying. Somebody says, hey, look, I just want you to know, I want you to know who I am. Okay, I'm the first and the last. I'm the alpha and the omega. Everything starts and everything ends with me. That sounds like a pretty arrogant statement. And then secondly, he's like, not only that, but also I am the one who both died and then came back. I conquered death. So that could feel like a lie. Outside of the fact that Jesus is the son of God, he is not being arrogant. Jesus is just being incredibly truthful as we find him here. So he's the first and the last. He came back from the dead. And so that should be encouragement because that should give us incredible comfort when we face, face pain in life, knowing that Jesus, the Savior of the world, the one that hopefully you have put your faith in, that you acknowledge as Lord of your life, is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He's the one who conquered death. So if we're going to have faith in anybody, if we're going to trust in the sovereignty of anything, my bet's on him. And that's largely what Jesus is saying here to the church, the church in, in Smyrna. Jesus died and he came to life again should give us comfort when we face that pain. Smyrna, this city, had been a, a Greek colony as far back as, as 1000 B.C. And around 600 B.C., actually, it was invaded and destroyed by a group of people. The city laid in, in ruins for 400 years, just ruins. So from 600 to 200, the city was just decimated. Then around 200 B.C., a guy had it rebuilt, and it was planned and, and, and kind of a, a, a unified city. And it was built with streets that were, that were broad and straight and sweeping and beautifully paved. And, you know, we think about, like, paved streets. That should be like, no, this was a big deal back in the day. The city had experienced death, and that city had literally been brought back to life. 
Jesus' recommendation here is significant because, because he, has, he has actually criticism for this church. But before that, we need to recognize that not only is the church in Smyrna being persecuted, not only is the church in Smyrna experiencing tragedy, but beyond that, the very city in which they dwell is also experiencing, has experienced tragedy. It also has been crushed, it also has been dead, and it also has been brought back to life. And so Jesus is embodying what it is that they should already know about their surrounding community as well. He's telling them, hey, look, I was dead, I came back to life just like Smyrna. That's what it says in, in verse 9, it actually goes on. And this is Jesus' uh, commendation for them. And this is significant because Jesus actually doesn't have a criticism for the church. If you remember last week, I said, hey, Jesus is going to introduce himself. He's going to commend them for something. After that, he's going to criticize them for something. And then he's going to tell them how to fix it, right? This is the only church out of the seven churches that Jesus has no criticism for. He's going to tell them the truth. He's going to tell them some hard truth, but he's not criticizing them. This is what it says in verse 9. It says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and they're not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So Jesus here, he actually says he knows four things about them. Jesus knows their performance, right? Jesus knows about their afflictions. He knows all of those different things. And, and the phrase that's used there, Jesus kind of used when speaking to the church in Ephesus as well. This church, just like Ephesus, they are working unto the Lord. They are doing their best, and Jesus recognizes this ministry. And sometimes I think, uh, even as, as maybe they may be questioning whether or not Jesus sees the ministry that they are doing. I think there's times for those of us in the church, especially those of us in the church who serve for a long time, that we just think, is it even worth it? Is what I do for the church or serving the world or whatever, like, is it even, does it even matter? You know, Brian came out here and talked about, you know, there are 300 people here and a million kids and all the different things, right? And that's awesome for Wednesday night. Actually, Keith Keel, he and I, uh, he, <laughs> not I, Keith runs our kitchen uh, for us, and we were standing up here, and we we're looking at this line that's wrapped almost all the way back to those doors. And he was like, "You see that line?" I was like, "Yeah, bro, you need to serve faster, right?" And it was awesome. We had so many people here, and the fellowship, and all those different things. But I can't think, or, 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 I can't look at that and not think about the people who are serving behind the scenes. Because we show up and we're like, I'll drop five bucks for a good meal. I don't have to cook. It tastes good. And then I get to go and do small group time and my kids get to go over into kids ministry and all that. Different. Like, like it's a great deal, right? And we think, man, this is so convenient. There is so much work that goes into that being convenient. There are times where a kitchen crew is preparing for Wednesday night dinner on Sunday after church. And yeah, they still come to church. They come to church, right? And then you'll see them in there. They're chopping up stuff and they're boiling. So I don't even know what it is that they do because I'm not allowed in there. Um, but I can, like Sundays, and they're, they're just like going to town and they're happy. They got their worship music on and they're doing all this stuff. And then sometimes they're here on Mondays and then Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Forget about like having a quiet work day in my office because there's so many kitchen people 
who are just consistently over there cooking and doing different things. And like, I just think to myself, if I wasn't serving under the Lord, or more importantly, if they weren't serving under the Lord, I bet, I bet dicing onions on a regular basis would, would, would make me consider, is this worth it? I'm dicing onions for 300 people right now. Do people even understand why it is that I do it? God, do you see this? Do you see my work? Because it can feel tiresome. It can feel thankless. And especially if you're chopping, we got guys who they don't serve. We don't allow them to serve food out here. We're like, you're not nice enough. You got to stay in the kitchen. Um, And so they don't serve. They cook food. They don't get to see anybody smile. And all they do is they fill up the food and they go back and they wash dishes. That's it. They don't even get to see the fruit of the labor. The fruit of the labor is clean dishes when they're done. There is no way that I would be able to do something like that, right? Because I was like, I don't know if people understand, understand why it is that I'm doing what I'm doing, that I am facilitating fellowship of the believers, that I'm allowing people to come and commune with one another. And then after that, like I said, they drop off their kids, they go to small group, and all of it starts at 5.30. Stop showing up at 5. And all of it starts at 530 And they get to sit around a table and talk to other believers and share about the things that are happening in their life. And man, our Wednesday night, our Wednesday night is is so fruitful simply because of the fact that our kitchen crew goes in there and they just consider what they do a ministry, not work. But it's not even just that. Like, think about like nursery people. Nah. Nursery people love being in the nursery. They're like, oh, babies, right? Think about junior high leaders. Let's go with that, right? Because I've lived that life before where I'm like, I'm supposed to lead a small group. We're talking about God's sovereignty. And, and God, this, this kid just keeps asking about dinosaurs and we're way off track. I don't know what it is I'm supposed to do now. Do you even see what it is that I'm doing? And so God actually has a great, great encouragement for us in Hebrews 6.10. When we think, God, do you even see it? Because the church in Smyrna is feeling beat down. And in Hebrews 6.10, it says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And I was like, hey, look, I see you. I know what you're doing. You're serving the saints because of the fact that you love me. You're serving the world because of the fact that you love me. And that should be the encouragement that we're able to take from this because God sees, God knows, and God won't overlook it. But Jesus knows more things about the church in Smyrna. Jesus knows their, their pain. Right, the Greek word here can be translated like tribulation, affliction, trouble, anguish, persecution, burden, tragedy, all of those different things. I would add to that, that list simply pain. Jesus is saying, I know you all look afflicted and poor. I get that. But I consider you rich. This isn't the first time Jesus flips a narrative on its head. Right, if you look all through the Gospels, Jesus is like, this is what you think it looks like? It actually looks like this. Okay, Jesus says the same thing here. He's like, hey, look, I know you think you're poor, but actually you're, you're rich. Have you ever considered that oftentimes it takes suffering, it takes tragedy, it takes persecution to remind us that God is actually sovereign and that God is actually going to work everything out for, for our good and his glory? I mean, think about it, because when things are going well, 
when you're, you know, you're, you're flush with cash and you just got the promotion, you got all the babies and, you know, all those different things that you're like, man, work, like things are, life is just going well. Oftentimes we don't give God a second thought. We don't give God's sovereignty a second thought, that's for sure, because we're like, clearly God is sovereign. I'm killing it right now. But then when tragedy strikes, when suffering hits, all of a sudden we have to go back and remind ourselves that, oh, wait, I, oh, that's right. God is sovereign. God is, he is on, on the throne as a matter of fact. And it's hard. And oftentimes it's simply a mindset shift for us of recognizing who, who God is. He's actually a business leader. His name is Alan Emery. And Alan, he, he tells a story about a comp, accompanying his friend and his mentor to go see an employee of his who had just had surgery. He was in a tragic accident. The surgery took eight hours, right? And there was a really, really painful uh, recovery in front of him. And so uh, the, the, the story goes anyway that he says to his friend Alex, he says, Alex, you know I've had a number of serious operations and I know the pain of trying to talk. He said, so don't talk right now, but I think the questions you are asking, I think I know the questions you're asking. He said, there's two verses I want to give you. There's Genesis 42:36, where someone is crying out and saying, all of these things are against me. And then there's Romans 8.28 that says, all things work together for good to those who love God. It says to him, we have an option of these two attitudes, and we need to have the perspective of the latter. So when we're walking through suffering, when we're dealing with tragedy, we can either think, God, where are you? Everything is against me. Everything is terrible. Everything is hard. Why aren't you showing up right now? We can have that, that Genesis 4, 30, 42, 36 attitude, or we can have the attitude of Romans 8, 28 of saying, God, I know that there's difficulty in this life. I know that there's suffering in this life. And God, beyond all of it, I also know that all things work together for good to those who love you. I know it, so I'm going to remember that. There's another pastor who says, the choice is this, to be beat up or to be upbeat. The perspective you choose will color your life completely and thoroughly. Will it be gentle tones of grace and providence or harsh slashes of despair and emptiness? We need to have a biblical view of suffering. We need to recognize that suffering consistently is going to be here in this life. And so we got to kind of consider this namesake of Smyrna. Myrrh. When you anoint something, you, you, you put something over it, right? You anoint someone with oil. You hear that oftentimes. Uh, it means you pour oil over them. You pour it on them. It, kinda, it runs down their forehead. It, it completely uncovers them. And so when myrrh was crushed, like I said, it gave off this like good aroma. And so myrrh was also used to, to anoint priests in the Old Testament. The Levites in the Old Testament, maybe you've heard of that name before, specifically in the book of Exodus, Deuteronomy, they talk about it a lot, where the priests, they need to be anointed. And one of the things they anoint, were anointed with was myrrh. And so think about that. The, the same oil that was once bruised and crushed, that fruit, ended up becoming something that qualified a man, a leader, a priest, a pastor to stand in the gap for sinners and intercede for them. 
if you have suffered, you are now someone who can use that pain as a way to minister to others. A pastor once said that from your greatest, from your greatest trial will come your greatest ministry. From your greatest hardship will, become, will come your, your greatest ministry. And so oftentimes you guys know that, that, that I'll talk about my dad and I'll talk about my dad's cancer and what he went through and all the different things that came out of that. I've got like a thousand stories that all you can trace back to my dad's cancer. Why do I talk about it? It was one of my greatest trials that I've ever had in my life. And I use that now to get ministry moving forward. It's a way that I can honor God and honor my dad at the same time. Because there's people in here who have walked through cancer, who will walk through cancer, who have loved ones who have walked through cancer as well. And I now get to speak into their reality. Why? Because I was crushed by that. And now I get the opportunity to use that to honor and to glorify God. So if you've suffered, you're now someone who can use that way, use that pain as a way to minister to others. And so then think back to myrrh. It's an incredibly appropriate gift for Jesus by the Magi. Gold for a king, frankincense for burial, and myrrh to anoint a priest. We're most effective after we've been greatly bruised and greatly broken and an aroma that is pleasing from the Lord rises then from our suffering. That's not all Jesus knows. Jesus knows their poverty as well. In fact, Jesus states that they're actually rich, which I'm sure the church in Smyrna would have been really frustrated by. <laughs> like, we're really poor. No, no, no. Trust me, you're, you're rich. The word for poverty here, it actually means absolute poverty. They had absolutely nothing. Think about this glorious, incredible, beautiful city in which they live. And here's the church with absolutely nothing. And that was because of the persecution that they were facing. We'll get to their persecution in just a sec. But Jesus is not unaware of their helpless state. Jesus is not unaware of your helpless state, of your suffering, of your tragedy, of your persecution. Jesus is not unaware of it. He knows what's going down. And he knows that persecution. Right? Jesus even says there at the end of that verse, he says, I know the blasphemy of those who say that they're, that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The Jews in Smyrna specifically were, were particularly against Christianity. This is something we need to know about Jewish history, right? Because Jesus comes onto the scene and he insults all of their leaders, not because he like just called them bad names or anything like that, but he was like, everything that you believe is essentially wrong. You're operating incorrectly. And so the Jews didn't like Christians at all, as a matter of fact. Remember, at this time, Christianity was actually considered a sect of Judaism. So Judaism lived up here, and then Christianity would have essentially been seen as a Jew, like a Jewish denomination. Okay? And that's how it was seen, not just by the Jews, but also by the Roman government at the time. So the Jews knew that the Christ followers were different. But to the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire kind of considered them the same thing. They didn't largely distinguish between Jew and Christian. And so eventually that changed, right? Rome considered Judaism to be an ancient, an ancient religion, whereas Christianity was eventually distinguished from it. The Roman Empire looked at disdain on this new religion, the way, Christianity, 
The Romans weren't about it. And it definitely didn't help that Christians replaced this buzz phrase of Caesar worship because before the buzz phrase was Caesar is Lord. And then the Christian changed it to Jesus is Lord. Right? Needless to say, it's pretty doubtful you're going to make a lot of friends when you're abandoning, abandoning the mandated worship of the state. And so Jesus is saying when you're facing slander, when you're facing trouble from people, don't forget who really is your adversary. It's not the person in front of you. It's not the lawnmower. It's not the diced onions. It's not the empty bank account. It's not the tragedy that you're going through. That is not your enemy. Your enemy is right in front of you. Your enemy is Satan is what he's saying. And Paul actually reminds us about this in Ephesians 6.12. He says, Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against your tragedy. It's not against other people. It's not against your boss. It's not against your coworker. It's not against your ex. It's not against whoever it, it may be. Our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You're not fighting against those different people. Your struggle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so Jesus tells them that, and then Jesus is going to correct them here in verses 10 and 11. And this is what he says. He says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Okay, so he's like, hey, you're about to suffer. Don't be afraid of it. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So Jesus' correction for them here is don't be afraid. Don't fear. And I know suffering is good. Don't fear. And he tells them they're about to have 10 days of tribulation, including prison. And we don't know if this is a literal 10 days. We don't know if this is figurative or anything like that. Actually, there's a couple scholars who believe that, that there were 10 Caesars who heavily persecuted the Christians at that time. And that, that could be the 10 that they're talking about. We don't know. Either way, what is most important is that their suffering is going to be temporal. Their suffering is not going to be forever. That this promise would encourage them that there is an end in sight for their suffering. The issue is the end in sight isn't probably what the, what the Christians in Smyrna would hope for. It's not some fairy tale Christian produced movie where everything works out before the credits roll at the end. That's not how this works. Jesus isn't sugarcoating hardship. He's telling them it is about to get worse. Hey, Smyrna, it's about to get a lot worse, even resulting in death. Notice there is no promise to an end of the suffering, only a reward for the suffering. I don't know how encouraging that would be to you or how encouraging it could be to us. That Jesus is essentially saying, hey, look, you are going to suffer and I'm not going to promise to take your suffering away. As a matter of fact, suffering is always going to be part of being human. Suffering is always going to be a part of this world before the next. And I'm not going to promise to take that away. But I'll tell you what I will do is what Jesus says. Jesus says, I'll tell you what I will do. If you endure, the saints, if, the saints, if you endure, I'm going to give you a crown of victory once you get to eternity with me. The Christians had a choice at the time. 
They had a choice to whether be comp- to, to compromise or be faithful. It's the same choice that we all have every single day. Are we going to compromise on what it is that we say we believe here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night? Or are we going to be faithful to that? See, Caesar worship at the time, Caesar worship is required by Rome. And if you, were worship, if you worship Caesar, you'd be allowed to go to a hearing where they would grant you a certificate and, and say, Caesar is my God. You would have signed off on that certificate, essentially. And then, and then nobody would touch you from that point regarding your religious worship. As long as you had the certificate, hey, pull it out of the filing cabinet, show it to the authorities at the door. Yep, Caesar is my, is my God. If you didn't have a certificate, though, they could question you. And then you could certainly, certainly they would question if you said, I don't bow to Caesar, I bow to Jesus. That would be a threat to the Roman Empire, right? The peace that Rome kept was with a sword. And if you were to say something like that, there was risk for execution. And so some Christians would probably just say, hey, come on, just lie, get that certificate, and spare your family. Spare your kids, spare your job, and then you can do so much good later on. And it's fine, because it really doesn't, it's just a piece of paper. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter to anyone. It doesn't mean anything anyway. I'm just telling them what they need to hear. But then there are other Christians who would say, no way, I'm not compromising whom I worship. If they want to take me to my death, to my death, I will go. And so there was this conflict. And so the question then becomes, what is it that we would do if we were to face such a thing? Because I don't think we've really grappled with that. I think there's some people who are like, oh, yeah, maybe I would do whatever. And, and many of us, if we, like, like right now, when we're not actually facing that choice, we're like, no, I would never run. I would never do anything like that. But I think the reality is, is just like the early church, many of us would run from that suffering because of fear. And we would just lie about it and get the certificate to spare our lives and spare the lives of our families. But Jesus here actually says, don't be afraid, don't run. And sometimes we're surprised by our suffering, right? Because suffering can oftentimes just come out of nowhere. And sometimes it seems like it'll never end. But we're not supposed to be surprised by this. We're supposed to be ready for this. And when we endure to the end, even if that end includes death, why? Because, because Jesus promises a crown. For the church for Smyrna, it would be a crown of life to not be hurt by the second death. Be faithful until death is what he says. And then I'll give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 11. And so the crown of life here is reminiscent of kind of that athletic crown with leaves given out to those who won in a competition, right? That sort of thing. And they would be rewarded for being victorious. And so because of the fact we are someone who has conquered in the face of tragedy, we don't have to be afraid of death. And that conqueror's name, we have someone who has conquered. That conqueror's name is Jesus, the one who died and the one who came to life once again, like it says in verse 8. Think about Jesus and, and the suffering that he endured. Right before he went to a cross, he went to a garden. You guys remember that garden is called Gethsemane. And Jesus goes there, and it's the, the night that, that he's betrayed, the night before he was crucified, right? And he's in Gethsemane, and he is just in anguish. 
His pores are like exploding. He's sweating and there's blood and he asks his buddies to stay awake because he's in just so much anguish about what is about to go down. His buddies are like, nah, I'm going to go take a nap instead. And so Jesus is just by himself here crying out to God like, God, if you can take this cup from me, please, if there's any other way, please, let's do, let's do that. The interesting thing here to bring it all the way back to this idea of myrrh and birth narrative and presses and all this thing, you know Gethsemane, what that means? Gethsemane means olive press. And the depths of scripture. Olive press, it has the same meaning that, that myrrh does. That Jesus had to suffer to give his life as a ransom for many. He did so for others. He did so for you. He did so for me. And so Peter, he is an eyewitness to this suffering, actually. An eyewitness to what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Jesus was just being pressed and crushed. And it was the beginning of that entire narrative. And so Peter then, he, he, he talks about in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, he actually gives encouragement when someone is being pressed, when someone is being crushed, when they're dealing with, with angst and tragedy and suffering. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. And as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Peter's like, suffering is going to happen, so get ready. You know how I know it's going to suffer? You know how I know it's going to happen? Jesus suffered as well. And so arm yourself with the same attitude that Jesus had. Say, God, whatever it is that you want to do, I'll do it. But if there's any other way, take this cup away from me. And we know that you're going to suffer for a little while. And that little while may be the extent of your entire life here on earth. We should be expecting suffering. But as a result, once you get into eternity, he doesn't live. We're not going to live the rest of our life for evil human desires. We get to live our life for the will of God. Peter continues on in chapter 5 with kind of the same thing. He says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around, like, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, little while on earth, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast to him, not to us, to him, the guy who is going to restore us, be the power forever and ever. Amen. That's the encouragement Peter gives. It's the same thing that Jesus is talking about. Your suffering's not going to go away. As long as you're on this earth, you will suffer. You will have hardship. And I don't know what the suffering is going to be because we each have a different lot in life. And so we have to recognize that, hey, at the end of the day, we've got to remember the long game, the fact that Jesus has already conquered all of it. Because just like the church of Smyrna, it's our responsibility to both expect persecution and live like persecution's already been conquered. And I think that's where the tension needs to lie, right? Too often time, too often we forget that at the end of the day, we know who wins. And we forget about the long game because we're just so like just trapped in today. And we think like I can't get, like I can't deal with my anxiety today or I can't deal with my grieving today or I can't deal with my tragedy 
today. And we're just so consumed here that we forget to elevate our sight lines and recognize that Jesus already won. That at the end of the day, yeah, we're going to suffer for a little while. And that's going to happen. And so get girded up and get ready to go. But an end is coming. I think the part that we have to grapple with and continue to remember is that end probably isn't going to be until the end of our lives here. And that's what Jesus has called us to. And that's a hard reality that we have to face. But too often we forget that we know who wins. It was Jesus after praying in the garden, right? Jesus wins at the end of the day after enduring arrest, beating, torture, death. Who came back to life three days later in order to show us that death could not hold him. That our sin, which was accounted for on the cross, was was accounted for by Jesus. And that even though the world isn't always going to appreciate the gospel, the battle has already been won by our God, who has conquered for each and every one of us. Amen, church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for today. God, I thank you for the church in Smyrna. I thank you that that church specifically was willing to endure hardship, that they deal with something completely and totally different than Ephesus did, only being 35 miles away. And so, God, we recognize that our church is unique, and it's unique with its own set of issues, it's unique with its own set of sufferings, its own set of tragedies, all of these different things. And so, God, I just pray for those people here today in this room who are just enduring hardship, who are enduring difficulty and suffering. God, I pray your spirit would be known by them in a very real way, that you would just, your spirit would encourage them to reach out to somebody for help to, or to simply just cry out to you in the same way that Jesus cried out to you in the garden, Father. And we would just say, like, God, I don't know what else to do, and I don't know why this is happening, but I recognize that, that, that you do all things for, for the glory of those who love you, for your glory specifically, Father, for the good of those who love you. And so, God, I, like, I don't know what's happening. I don't know why I'm being pressed. But, God, I pray amid being pressed from every single side that I would be an aromatic fragrance to everybody else around you. that I would make your name known. That we would come to that realization, Father. But God, I also, there's a, another group of people in this room with heads still bowed and eyes still closed. If, you've, if you are suffering on this side of eternity, and I know there's people in this room who are suffering and who are, are, are dealing with tragedy and hardship and all of these different things, if that's you and you don't have the hope that Jesus offers, man, can I just offer that to you right now? That we recognize that suffering is going to happen to the end of our lives and it's our, it, it, it largely is our choice and that God knows about, about whether or not that we are going to spend eternity with him or not. If that's you this morning, I would just ask you to make that profession of faith, acknowledging that Jesus is Lord of your life. You can simply repeat after me saying, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That my sin is what put you up on that cross. 
but I believe that you conquered death, Father, that you sent your son and he conquered death on our behalf so then we could choose to be with him, choose to follow him every single day, which means elevating our sight lines when we're enduring suffering and tragedy. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.